arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I am watching a movie from 1959 called House on the Haunted Hill. Not because Sojourn is a horror story, it's not. But the scene that comes up next after this gunshot is something I remembered when I was writing Sojourn and it has applicability to the first part of this episode. Pretty soon you'll hear Vincent Price come down the stairs and of course he's holding a gun and the lady by the acid pit is holding a gun. Goodbye, Vincent. He's done. And he sinks to the floor. <laughs> and she runs out. But knowing Vincent Price, he's probably not dead. Here comes another gentleman out of the back room. I don't know if he's alive or dead, but he's going to do something with Vincent Price that uh, is... Not very nice. He's lifting up a, it looks like a, a drawbridge, but it's an opening to a, a, a rectangular concrete pool. That pool does not contain water. It contains acid. And now he's dragging Vincent Price's body, of course, over to the acid pool and is about to dump it. There you go. Into the acid. Goodbye, Vincent. Goodbye house on the haunted hill but somebody else will come down and i believe this woman that's coming down the blonde she passed away just a little while ago but now she's alive again and walking down to the acid pit room and looking over to the pool of acid and she's looking for vincent price and he'll come out of that acid pool real soon the door closes by itself The second door closes by itself. So she's trapped in this room, who knows how many floors down, with three doors closed. Her eyes are wide open now as she looks around to find out why these doors are closing by themselves. The answer to that will come very shortly as she looks down into the acid pit. The bubbling acid pit. You can hear it bubbling now. You can see it bubbling on my screen here. And up out of the acid pit comes a complete skeleton we assume is Vincent Price. She tries to get out, but there is no exit. And he's got his bone-like, claw-like metatarsals stuck out to get her and drag her into the pit with him. Walking, the skeleton is walking right toward the lady. She's backed up against the door. Last you got it all. Everything I have. <laughs> Even my life. She now the but skeleton is chasing the lady. Come with me, murderess. Come with me. The bony hand on her shoulder gets her to scream. She's backing up, of course, toward the acid pit. 
as the skeleton sways back and forth and tries to push her. He doesn't even have to try to push her. He's just coming closer and smiling, of course. And down she goes. No, she hasn't gone yet. I thought she was going to go. Oh, he pushed her right in. There she goes. <laughs> Alright, enough of the house on the haunted hill. I did remember this. And this is what's going to happen to Tom Loftus. Coming up at the beginning of episode 3. Of Sojourn, which begins right now. On Fitting on the Air. Chapter 54 The jolt awakened him and pain radiated across his ribs where they kicked him. With clenched fists, he leaped toward the black-helmeted guards. Closely-knit metal links provided a body-fitting armor. You're all so brave with your spears and your protective suits. Silence, Oryx Holmes, said the young one with a scar over his right eye. Loft just wanted to bash the other eye. You are challenging us only when you have a few more hours left in your miserable life. The other protectorate guards pulled him into the hall. They formed a shield around him and marched him forward. The torch had burned out and the sunlight cut across the stones. Loftus wondered whether DeLuca had spoken with Kath or convinced the other tribunal members to commute this sentence. He was marched along the upper corridor tiles and quickly descended the stairs back to the tribunal hall. The galleries and the lower viewing sections were empty. He glanced at the empty room to the rear doors near the huge white bench. His heart beat swiftly when they stepped into the bright morning sunshine and fresh air. Another cheer shook the stadium arches only a few hundred yards across the sheared grass. A few stragglers shouted death threats against him as the guards brought him along the Durrett Road bordering the grass. To his right, the towering blue spires of the Tolton's fortress jutted toward the high, thin clouds. Loftus tried to imagine Kath at her present age somewhere behind the thick grainy walls, but another cheer sent his thoughts back to the stadium. Without word from DeLuca, his life might end shortly. They brought him to a ramp leading through one of the arches at the far end of the stadium. More guards appeared and he was herded up the ramp with additional prisoners. The colorful, raucous crowd were crammed into seats as if they were watching a football league playoff in the crisp autumn air. The area was divided into sections containing dark circular pools with a yellow liquid reflecting the sunlight in bright blotches. Long blue chutes spiraled downward from metal scaffolding connecting the three pools. A team of guards lowered the long metal mesh poles into the nearest pool and dredged up human skeletal remains from the acid. As they pushed another group of prisoners onto the scaffolding, an assortment of bones were deposited in a heap beside a wood cart connected to two guampas. Loftus turned as the crowd ignited and a villager tumbled down the curved chute. The painful cries were muted by the acid and the clothing slowly sank out of sight in a mass of bubbles. In an adjacent dirt corral, they had harnessed more mantari to a rigid pole attached to another guampas cart. When the guards shouted, the guampas raced forward. The cart moved the pole over the metal slivers and the bodies were shredded. Blood coated the metal and the dirt. The unbearable, agonizing wails filled the air. When the Guampas reached the gate, every one of the villages had died. 
guards placed a metal chain around Loftus's neck. The steel plate was etched with his number for this event. Eleven. Eleven. I'm innocent of these charges. I merely follow orders, Oryx Holmes, growled the guard. You had your opportunity to disprove the charges in the tribunal, and now you will die. He checked the crowd for DeLuca or even Kath as they shoved him along a worn wood rail pen below the throng. More prisoners lined the scaffolding above the Kadea chutes. The multitude fanatically stomped the stadium floor and cheered again as another two villagers tumbled downward to their deaths. Loftus surveyed the stairs and the rusted scaffolding and convinced himself he would only feel the pain for a few seconds. Many times in his life he had faced torture or even the possibility of a lingering death. The line nudged forward. He searched for DeLuca as more villages were dragged and sliced on the blades to his right. This time the bodies were merely left in the dusty area. The guard seated below a red draped box less than a hundred yards to his left continuously read a long list of charges. He located DeLuca next to Zartus and Avalon. How did Frank DeLuca become part of this terror? A sandy-haired taller man in a velvet green and white robe stood near the guard and listened to the charges. Seated directly behind this man was a woman with brilliant long white hair who recognized the high cheekbones even at this distance. Kath wore a blue robe with gold fringe and bands on the arms. During this monstrosity below, she casually ate a meal from plates set on an elegant table with red and yellow linen. She seemed unaffected and continued her meal as the crowd responded when the guards pushed the next group down the chutes. She lifted a silver goblet to her lips as Loftus reached the stairs below the Kadia platform. Somebody shoved his side. Up the stairs, Oryx Solms! The guard slapped his spear against Loftus's head as more guards diverted him to the stairs. Luca was simply watching the executions, seemingly unaware Loftus stood only a short distance from the final shoot ramp. Kath wiped her lips with a linen napkin and motioned for one of the servants to remove her empty goblet. Sebek is accused of challenging the rule of the Tolton, said the man holding the parchment near the Tolton. So reads the tribunal, release him into the pit. The third man Terry, ahead of Loftus, pleaded with the guards and spoke of his wife and children back in the village. But they grabbed his arms and threw him down the slick chute. He fought and slipped as he descended down and screeched out for help before he hit the acid. Loftus turned to the dignitary box and for the first time made eye contact with DeLuca. Through the ruckus in the area, DeLuca raised both thumbs and nodded. How the hell are you going to get me out of this one, Frank? He whispered. This is insane. A man with curly hair and a beard with several days' growth swept a wispy handmade broom along the smooth boards. His tense gray eyes locked on Loftus, and then he raised his brows as his face assumed a tranquil appearance. You merely need to trust in Tom and Char and not in your own ways. Inner vengeance is not the way. He kept sweeping and then disappeared down the stairs. Loftus felt his heart thumping. He took in the cool air as the sandy-haired man in the green robe, probably the Tolton, leaned toward Kath and said something to her. The guard read the charges against the man ahead of Loftus. He clenched his teeth and his heart pounded. Men outside the round tank shoveled huge amber granules from a large wood cart near a lower entrance ramp. 
Other men brought a guampus in a cart from the far side and also added granules into the acid. In his thoughts, he repeated the sweeper's predilection, trust in Talbot Shah. On the platform below, the guards dropped the villager down the chute. He flipped over and Loftus heard him scream when he hit the surface. Again, he turned toward DeLuca. As the men kept shoveling, the villager treaded for a short time, but his head slowly disappeared. DeLuca spoke with the guard, calling out the charges. The guard temporarily halted the execution and stepped over the calf. DeLuca pointed toward the Kadir. She quickly turned and gazed at Loftus, waiting atop the platform. Very slowly, she raised her hands to her mouth, and their eyes met across the stadium. Her eyes packed venom as her lips tightened. She waved her hand, turned, and left the area. DeLuca gestured with his hands as he spoke to the guard, but the people packed in the arena grew impatient and chanted for Loftus's death. The Tolton sprang up and looked at DeLuca and then shoved the guard. Then Loftus heard him resume the charges and the crowd cheered. From the Necris Valley is Loftus, an Oryx Psalms and worshiper of Tabun Shah, sentenced to death in the Kadia. Orthon, dissenting, so reads the tribunal. I'm innocent, he said softly. The guards clamped their hands around his forearms. Tell that to your precious Tabun Shah. They dragged him to the platform's edge and he gazed down the grease chute as the men below shoveled the granules into the pits. Get those shovelers out! Move the guampus! The guards summoned additional support. The contingent moved up the ramp below the arena. The men threw their shovels near the empty cart. One of the guards below signaled Loftus's executioners. Another guard whispered in his ear, Hold your breath. Keep your eyes open. He will take you. Follow him under where they open the bottom. Push him into the pit! The warm but stagnant air had a lingering sulfurous odor. Hit from behind, he lost his footing as the crowd stood and he began a swift, slippery downward spiral. His shoulders swung around as he fishtailed toward the pit. He gulped in a full breath and his arm hit the cool surface. The raucous crowd noise was muted as he went under, but the liquid did not burn his skin. Someone grabbed his arm. The blurry image of a young man's floating brown hair appeared before him. He was towed toward an opening in the tank wall. The current took him rapidly through an orifice and into an expanded tube. His body was pulled down at a steep angle through the gurgling, gushing pipe. The remaining air in his lungs ached and he tumbled and popped out in midair. He exhaled and took in the fresh air quickly. For a second he saw several men in a second underground tank. He hit the surface feet first, but quickly sprang above the pool and took in more air. Are you all right, Loftus? asked the young swimmer. Loftus caught his breath as he treaded water. Yeah, yeah, you changed the acid content in the tank. With enough talpa shoveled into the pit, the water returns. They helped him through the water toward the stony edge. Two boys, possibly in their mid-teens, reached down and took his wrists and pulled him onto the dry surface. You saved my life. Purging of the tank came a little early this week, said the swimmer in the water, with recolored granules. Come with us, said the younger boy. I wouldn't have it any other way, answered Loftus, still breathing heavily as he stood. They escorted him to a storage room lined with sacks and barrels of chemicals. The room had a similar sulfur odor. Someone handed him a brown cloth fabric. 
We have new clothes for you. Thank you. Did Orthon, Orthon send you in here? We were paid 16 garrets by Yarish. I know not Orthon. Loftus dried his hair and pulled the water-soaked jersey over his head. I'm just glad to still be breathing. He dabbed a modified towel over his wet skin. So what happens to me now? We are to leave you here or we won't receive our wages. Sure. The boy backed up with the others. Thanks to the guy who brought me in. Good fortune to you. Thank you. They left through the crack wood doors at the far end. Loftus removed the rest of his wet clothes. As he wiped his skin, he hardly believed he was still alive. But his thoughts centered on Kath's hatred and long white hair back at the stadium. By now, she would have assumed that he was dead. Not bad for a dead man. Loftus, buttoning his shirt, turned as DeLuca waddled down the ramp. Frank, you did it! You did it! DeLuca trundled in slowly. Loftus remained stunned at DeLuca's advanced age. I made a deal with Zartus. They removed the remains of a man killed outside the mead last night. We gave him your death tag and paid off the head protectorate guard. The old deal maker. DeLuca's sober expression bothered him. What's the matter? This thing is a little bit more complicated and I don't know if you're going to like it. Hey, I'm alive, he said, pulling up the trousers. What about Kath? She had hatred in her eyes. She actually thought you were going to be killed. Loftus pushed his toes into the boot. And she let it happen. Where is she now? She can't come down here. Listen, you're being sent to the morgue. What the hell is that? He asked, lacing his boot. DeLuca held his wrist. It's my only option. You don't understand. This is a violent, sick society completely controlled by the Tolton. I do understand that, Frank. Why does the Tolton possess the intervengeance? It was said that he encountered the aliens just as we did, but millions died. It is said that he crossed the passageway. And that intervengeance that drives the aliens has been absorbed by the Tolton and Kath. It's like a virus, Frank, spreading and never-ending. DeLuca looked up. I have to get you the hell out of here. Sartus was very specific. I had to take what he gave me. Yeah, so I can leave and search for the passageway back to Earth. The Marg is very remote, between the Ascrans and the Nezcran. The desert mines, thousands of miles from any settlement. brutal and inhuman. What? They will transport you in a grid, Camino. Loftus stood upright. Frank, just get me outside and I'll take off. For a moment, DeLuca closed his eyes. Tommy, Zartus's guards are in charge now. They're outside the doors. They'll kill you if you don't do exactly what they say. Loftus tied the other boot and panned the room. There must be another way. I've always found another way out. No. I'm sorry. It was either this or let you die. Loftus pushed his lips together. Damn the Tolton. Quiet. Listen, I'm very old now. My life will be over soon, but I will do whatever I can in my remaining time to get you out of the morgue. He grabbed DeLuca's arm. Just get me the hell out right now. I don't want to go to a prison. Mead is full of the Tolton's informants. I don't care about my own life. It's just if they kill you, they'll understand what I did. I can only tell you, from what I've read in the Sabre, that you have a destiny, my friend. You've used that term, inner vengeance. The term abounds throughout the Sabre. Follow your heart, and not your head. I think you are the Surrey of Khan. That's far-fetched lore. Nonsense. 
Loftus reached in the wet trouser pocket. He pulled out the clear bunshaft and stared at the inscriptions. I don't understand all of this. That's the whole point, Tom. You aren't supposed to. You have to trust. You told that old man with the broom to tell me that. What man? The man sweeping the top boards above the Kadir. We have no man sweeping up there. He embraced Loftus and wiped a tear from his eye. I have to stay here. You do what the gods tell you. DeLuca put his hand on Loftus's shoulder. Good fortune to you and, and good life, Desperado. I will have neither a good fortune or a good life. DeLuca backed up and Loftus headed along the barrels to the wooded green doors. His old friend never looked back. Loftus opened the doors as DeLuca rounded the corner. Ahead, a torch burned along a stone block ramp. All the while, he searched the solid walls for a way out. Despite what DeLuca said, he was not going blindly to be led thousands of miles into the desert mines. In a brighter area above, five mesh-covered Tolton guards spotted and surrounded him before he reached the top. He was marched to a long whitewashed brick warehouse with a dirt floor and open window spans. Outside, the stadium rocked again in the sunlight. He pictured Kath watching and at some level sadistically enjoying the deadly spectacle. They took him to a cart with crossed wood bars at the far end. Five dark wampus were connected to the elevated cart and at least a dozen ill-clad prisoners were packed inside the wood cage. The guards opened the doors. Loftus thought about darting out the warehouse's open windows, but followed their instructions and climbed into the cage. The lethargic prisoner said nothing as he was seated on the bench. He squinted his eyes in the bright sun. They closed the gate. He folded his arms and studied the grid's rope joints. One of the guards shouted out an order and someone cracked a whip. The cart jolted forward. Loftus opened his eyes as they rumbled down the dirt road. Beyond the hills, the fortress's blue spires rose above the village. He leaned his head against the grid and longed for a semblance of peace as his life was about to change again. He thought of Appleton's sloping hills, the farmer's fields and the hiking trails. Not only did Appleton exist across the space of the intergalactic passageway, but was probably in another time as well. While he fantasized living back in Appleton with Kath as she used to be, he understood this reality. She was somewhere in the spired fortress. He wanted to ask her why she had changed and at least tell her that he had once loved her. Guard climbed from the driver's perch and held the wooden bars. Attention, prisoners of the Tolton. The Tolton has spared your lives. But be advised, you will remain in the Camino for the rest of your journey to the Marg. Any attempt to escape will result in immediate death. That is all. That's enough, whispered Loftus as the guard climbed up top. Loftus leaned forward as they left the village. He stared at the fortress spires until they were only distant cones behind the trees. The Camino crested a hill. He heard the guampus grunt and gained speed down the other side. The fortress disappeared under the tree branches, but his thoughts centered on the usually cynical Frank DeLuca. His old friend's study of the saber had Loftus thinking more about Tabun Shah. He could not explain the Bunshaf tenants or how he left Altashar so many years ago, but he longed for an understanding of the written prophecies of a civilization now vanished. Chapter 55 Bochak crunched his grasper as he peered out the Azakar's portal. Gray mountain points jutted 
above the heavy Creod clouds. As a member of the upper echelon, with Elkin calling a full military alert, he was compelled to leave the surface and return as rapidly as possible to the echelon towers. Yet his Nikitam showed no indication of outsider attacks. He pointed the possibility of some new race challenging the realm. As the Asakar banked toward the landing link, he understood Saad's personal importance to any military response. In some ways, he feared giving Saad power more than he feared an outside attack. Ayak and Frond stood with advisors near the Tower Thassion as Bauchak's Azakar bumped the surface. He quickly unsealed the entry port and rushed forward. I don't understand this! Just a full alert and no explanation? That is all we have, said Frond. Where is Sard? he asked as they entered the Thassian light. We have no reports, answered Ayak. Bauchok's matrixes flooded and his fangs edged along his mouth. We may have to bring Sard back to a Varget position if this attack is real. Sard is obsessed with eliminating the Mantari from the Humea, said Ayak. Bauchok's frame sounded. Yes! Agnes, said one of the Vargets. We have located the source of the attack. The Urkham Serban. Serban? He focused his matrices on Fron and Ayak in the red light. The Aragosta is docked at Serban. Sard, why hasn't the Vargard of Galga repulsed this attack? We don't have details, Emnus. Isn't Osborne open yet? Not presently, with the interference around Serban, said the aide. I want an Osborne now, cried Bocek. Maybe this attack isn't serious, said Aik. Elkin is a loyal and rational Creon, said Fron. He would not order an alert unless the threat was serious. Why are Vargats and Selvitz getting this information prior to my viewing? Something isn't right, said Bochark. The Thassian opened and they hurried into the upper chambers. Unless he was right, who? asked Aik. Sart. The realm controls this portion of the Humea, including Serban. Bachok stopped before he reached the Nikitams up front. Enough talk of Sard. We are under attack. Sard believes Tob and Shaw will return to attack the realm in the final battle, said Fron. Legend and myth, shouted Bachok as he started forward again. Ludicrous. Taban Shah was defeated at Galgar. If we listened to Sard, we would spend all our resources looking under every swamp frack. Osborne is ready to serve on Emnus, said his aide. Good. Let us find the truth. As Frond and Aak gathered next to him, Bachak watched a mass of green and gray static swirl around the room. Eventually, the contact materialized, but they were on the Aragosta's Icean. What is this? Bargart Mio was on his knees. I bear the upper echelon's indulgence. Rise! I am sorry, Emnus, he said as he stood. We are in orbit around Serban. Where is Elkin and why has he not ordered a full alert? I demand answers immediately. Then the Emnus is not aware of what has happened on Serban. Bochok's fangs were fully exposed. Why do you think we have opened this Osbort? Emnus, Elkin ordered the Aragosta back to the home Urkham, and strategic defenses have been set up around Serban. Well, what has happened? asked Ayak. 
Bochak smashed his grasper on the table. He will tell us what has happened. Emnus, Sard has constructed a plot to kill you and seize power in the realm. Why, this is traitorous, said Bochak. He has been apprehended. Excellent. Bochak moved next to the bargain. You will be commended. Sard proposed a plot to us, and we decided jointly to thwart his actions. Precautionary measures have been taken in case any member of this conspiracy is still at large. Elkin has ordered the amperage to the innermost defense of Urkums, as well as the agricultural Urkums. I am not a Varget, and I have to trust that that is the proper action, said Bochek. Sard will die the death of a swamp mollusk. A thousand times. We will have him tortured for all the Humea to see. Where is Sard now? asked Frond. Within the Estic field, inside the Aragostas portal bays. You will divert the Osbot to that area, ordered Bochak. The arrogance of Sard. Bochak stormed to the spear overlooking the layered cloud bank. His inner feeling about Sard had proved correct. Not only was the realm's security threatened, but if left unabated, Sard might have fought his way back to the home Urkham. There he is, said Ayak. Bochak turned. Sard was suspended near the image of three Azakars. You have committed treason against the realm. Sard exposed his glistening pink fangs. What do you fools know of treason? You are weak and ineffective. Are we? asked Bochak, not facing the suspended image. You will have a full chance to experience the weakness and the ineffectiveness as you are publicly tortured. You will be brought to the Echelon Towers, where I will personally supervise the torture and your agonizing death. You will warn that the realm will never be challenged, said Frond. And you will all regret the words you have spoken to Sard. You have no power to carry out threats, said Ayak. Sard has allies. Then they will all be killed, said Bochak. Your military career, obsessed with Tabunshar, is over. Yes, added Ayak. You are a sorry example of a Creod bargain. I cannot view the sight of this coward, said Bochak. Bring us back to Varget Mir, and you, Sard, will plead for mercy on your knees as I conduct your torture. Sard faded away, and Mia stood with Alkin Blaze and Temeric. Where is Aeorn? asked Ayak. Sad to say, said Alkin, falling in homage with the others. Aeorn was a member of Sard's conspiracy. He was killed in the struggle to capture Sard. Bochak approached them. Rise! Aeorn, a member of a conspiracy? Loyal to Sard, said Alkin. May I speak, Demnus? Your opinion is needed, said Frond. Elkin's matrix is flipped with blue light. I assure the Emnus the Ambridge must be kept on alert and stationed in the defensive area until Sard is brought to justice and questioned. Anything less will expose the realm to possible attack. Approved, replied Bauchek. We commend you. You will be decorated and placed as Varget Gammon once Sard has been returned to the home Urkum. The realm acknowledges what you have done, and will always be grateful. Chapter 56 
suspended in the yestic field, Sard saw the upper echelon images dissipate. He ordered the Selvets to leave him in the field till a distorted signal screened out any further Osbod contact. His upper lip twitched as he drifted to the floor and stood. The echelon was convinced that Alkin had wrested control. He headed for the Thassian as Anka limped from the red light. Anka, are you injured? An injury of old. Your contact with the upper echelon was masterful. Come with Sard to the Thassian, said Sard. Both Creods merged into the red light and Sard requested passage to the Isian. Combined with the statements from your fellow Vargats, the Echelon is convinced you were captured in the Estix. Your instigating the alert will allow you safe travel to the Homericum. Sard is in an excellent strategic position. He will take the outpost and control the supplies before he takes the Homericum. I would humbly suggest, Vargat Garmin, that you change one element of your strategy. Sard values your advice. Do not damage the defensive outposts beyond repair. It could hurt you once you attack the whole Merkham. Sard may not have any choice. Anka thought for a moment as his matrixes brightened. You have the Echelon believing exactly what they want to believe, especially Bachak. You would walk into any defensive area without scattering a shooter beam. You need the defensive outposts intact. Sard considers your idea to have merit. And when you have assumed the ultimate powers, Vargan Endless, you will need all the weapons for use against the Taban Shah. The busy Isian materialized. Sard placed his grasper on Anka's shoulder and then walked ahead. He motioned up the Selvets before they dropped in homage. Once at the forward Nikitim, he pushed in the codes and faced the Vargats and the Selvets. Well done, loyal followers of Sard. Well done. The Icean rumbled as they tapped their walking appendages on the floor. But one of the Selvets across the Icean turned from his Nikitim. Vargat Garmin, you changed the incoming contact codes. Sard has shielded all incoming and outgoing contacts. Sard will not be challenged. They never suspected the truth, said Tameric. We must remain on guard, or the enemy will conquer us. The Vargat Garmin is correct, said Mia. We must remain vigilant. Sard always remembers loyalty and despises traitors. He has ordered the captured Mantari prepared for the Hamian Salter games on the voyage back. Sard assures you, no one will be disappointed. We are in your servitude said Blaze. This will be a campaign worthy of past glories, said Sard, turning to an anchor sitting up back. Sard has slightly altered his plans. Was our strategy faulty, Vargat Garmin? asked Tameric. Was Sard cautions against destroying the defensive outpost. We will need the shooters and reserves later. Sard will attempt installation of his own Selverts before a shooter is fired. Is that possible? asked Mia. As Elkin approved, Sard spun around and exposed his fangs. With or without Elkin, Sard makes all decisions. It will be a long voyage. Plans to have the Selvets take the key weapons reserves will be formulated. For now, the inferiors await us. Let us not disappoint them. 
Bagger Garmin, said Royke, intensely running scans on his Nikitam station. Sarad moved up the stairs. Sarad is aware of your devotion to finding Tabun Shah. I have no news presently, Varga Garmin. Sard does not understand how they have eluded Sard's searches for so long. He studied Nikitam's orange and yellow tacticals. In the lower corner, 435 scanned systems were recorded. You will find them, Reich. They are a clever race. Leaders of a race of inferiors. Sard trailed their amperage. They were at a distance after Galga, but they disappeared within the powerful time displacement. Maybe into another Humea or another time, said Roik. Sard is not aware of this. Their leaders spoke of leaving the Humea. Leaders? They have no leaders, only followers. The Taban Shah may be a force. It is said that they act upon the inferiors in a collective way. But what of your theory, Roik? Did they flee back in time, or did they leave the Hubea? I would humbly suggest that we get our Rupacons working on that possibility. We have only approached Tabun Shah's disappearance in military terms. Sard will consider your thoughts. First, he must take back what is his. Chapter 57 Sard studied all the defensive outposts read on the tacticals around the home Urkham. The three amperage Azakars, blue dots on the screen, slowly moved into place. Contained on the outpost Urkhams were dense PCOR concentrations to combat the intruder amperages. One outpost could vaporize all three amperage Azakars instantly, yet his force assumed a friendly status on all Osborts. Huta, Sard wishes to know the power levels of the outpost shooters. Normal status, Vargagaman. Sard pushed Roik's icy and fram. Roik, salvat penetration. Vargagaman, Paraskas report our salvats are in key administrative positions on two outposts. The change was reported to the upper echelon and approved for security reasons. Bachat believes in his own invincibility. That is a death dodge. Elkin overrode Roik's Nikitam. Check third Urko. Sard's matrixes brightened when he saw fully charged shooters in one of the outpost stations. What is this? So they suspect something, said Elkin. Sard does not want a confrontation at this time. The amperage must proceed in a normal fashion. Agreed, Vargat Garmin. I don't think they suspect anything. No one has changed the codes. Probably an oversight, said Roik, listening to the Urkham contacts. Those Selberts refuse to change positions. Then they will die, said Sard. Dampen all contact frequencies except with the Aragosta. Dampen the fields around the Azica shuttle. Sard will slip his Selberts in there and lower shooter reserve strength. Prepare to orbit the Urkham. Yes, Sparger Garmin said Roik. Sard will dress for battle in his orsel. May this action be swift and mighty. The shuttle Azakar descended vertically toward the towers above the magenta clouds. Within a gray fog along the horizon, the Azars burned boldly. Sard studied his salvets, like him, thirsty for battle and ready to carry out his orders to the death. 
The Azakar moved through the open tower ports in the dimmer light. Word of his false insurrection had spread around the realm, and he would die if they caught him away from the Aragosta. In his helmet tactical, the curved underground shooter reserve, designed by Sard and his Aoist, remained fully charged. Tark was adamant about having protection for the home Urkham after Galga. Sard thought back to Altashar and Tark's death inside the monolith. He scanned to the inside tower corridors and stood as the shuttle engines shut down. What bothered him was the outpost Proaska's contact with Huda on the Aragosta. On Margaret's side, I would never use the term Garmin. It is no longer deserved by Sard. Sard's fangs quickly extended. Sard is a traitor to the realm for what he has done. I have already requested transportation to witness his torture on the home Urkham. His behavior deserves death. Sard leaped from his seat and rumbled past his salvets to the portal. Sard demands the attack begin. Sard slammed his grasper against the portal. It slid upward and he rumbled down the ramp. Salvets, into battle. As he stomped across the portal bays, his salvets rushed down the Azakar ramp. Sard left the frequency open. Have you never stood with Bargar Garmin in battle? I only know that he's not the legend he claims. The present crisis was brought about only by Sard. Sard shut off the contact and followed the depiction on his helmet tactical. The Selvets moved along the corridor leading to the outpost offices. At the corridor juncture, the Selvets, shooters drawn, stormed by the chambers. They formed an outer ring around the Proaskar and his salvets as Sard entered the room. What is this? asked the Proaskar. Sard slowly removed his helmet. You say Sard is not worthy of the fame he has received. Sard, I thought you were in the Yestic fields. Sard drew his Westic and walked deliberately as the Proaskar fell in homage. Sard, I plead for mercy. How dare you propose to command an outpost of the realm, you disloyal slelling digger. You wish to be witness to Sarge's torture, do you? Surely you don't think I was serious in my conversation with your Azakar. With one clean, effective swipe, Sarge sheared the Proaska's head at the Matrixes. In a wild flurry, he hacked and mutilated the Proaska's shell. The Selvitz cheered, but Sarge could not stop. His anger at the echelon and this traitor pushed him to decimate the Proaska's body. Covered with yellow soaring, he finally turned to his selvets. Begin the attack! No one in the outpost will be spared! Green shooter fire brightened the offices, and the group bounded down the stairs into the complex. Outpost selvets fell and others were compacted to dust. Sard placed his westick in its sheath and glanced at the Proaska's remains. Then he grabbed his friend. Huda! We have watched your attack, Barger Common, a magnificent display. Sard is not to be challenged. Your orders, Barger Garmin, asked Huda. Send the next Azakar shuttles. Sard will install his own selvets. It will be done, Barger Garmin. And you will make preparations for the final passage to the home Urkum. With no outpost shooters to support them, the Echelon is powerless. Sard will take what is rightfully his and restore the glory of the realm. 
Chapter 58. The rolling Camino shook in the heat between the white dunes, sifted below the smooth red stone plateaus. Trees became scarce beyond the straw-grass plains. For weeks, having changed guampas several times, they entered the arid Nezcrans. Hungry and longing for water, Loftus drifted into a light sleep. The warm air left him lethargic, and he lost track of time. He alternately would rub his knuckle along his beard as he looked past the other prisoners into the sandy glare extending to the blue horizon. Loftus jostled as the Camino hit the ruts, opened his eyes and stretched. Late in the day, someone spotted a settlement wavering in the rising heat above the sand. During the next hour, towards sunset, a murky garrison formed amidst the undulating dunes. Prepare yourself! said the guard, leaning over from above. His thick black beard gave him a more hostile appearance. The morgue awaits you who have challenged the Tolton. After traveling day after day, Loftus had, at times, believed they had veered off the trail, and he may have avoided the mines. In the last vestige of sunlight, at a closer distance, the individual stones were prominent in the rough garrison wall. Scruffy uniformed soldiers with swords and spears formed a line inside the open wood gates. The guampas slowed and Loftus stared at the bearded, hardened, tanned men. Additional soldiers were stationed along the upper walls as the Camino rolled into the garrison. A bulging wood water tower hovered over the inner courtyard in a row of long stucco buildings. More soldiers guarded the hefty metal doors at an underground entrance near the water tower supports. Workers in smudged white clothing pushed heavy carts up a torch-lighted tunnel below. The creaking Camino stopped and the driver and guards jumped into the courtyard. Loftus vaguely heard them talking with the morgue soldiers. They walked around the grid, joked and exchanged stories about the mead and women. A group of soldiers followed them around the Camino. Somebody unlocked the grid. Out of the Camino! shouted one of the soldiers. Prisoners stirred in Loftus, his cramped body aching, hunched over with the others. Everyone out! You will form a line in the courtyard and await the overcore! Weakened, Loftus shuffled behind a few of the other prisoners. He stepped from the cart and onto the solid dirt. Some of the prisoners staggered and some fell over, and others roused them with spears. Across the yard, a stocky middle-aged man in a faded red and black uniform from the Mead strutted across the boardwalk under the side building's porch. He was clean-shaven and moved with an agility atypical of the rest of the soldiers. The guards shouted in unison as they stood at attention. Overcore approaches! Loftus's eyes arched and his parched throat needed water. He half looked at the overcore but heard his strong articulate voice echo around the courtyard. I am the Overcore. You have been brought here because you are criminals of the Tolton. You will pay back the Tolton a thousand times for your egregious behavior. You are now herbals and will work the mines. Your efforts will bring precious metal back to the mead. All stragglers will be eliminated. And you are free to escape at any time, he said and smiled at some of his soldiers. By foot, you will reach the mead in months after the sun fries you. As per order of the Tolton, I am required to inform you, worship of Tab and Shar is forbidden. I will not send any of my soldiers into the lower sections. Live as you wish inside the ground, away from the world. 
In the twilight, he panned the group and then moved back to the long porch. The overcore was just as much a prisoner at this desolate outpost as the soldiers and herbals below the surface. Someone pushed Loftus from behind. His legs buckled and he hit the dirt. One of the soldiers slapped the blunt end of a spear against his ribs. Loftus clamped his teeth as he stood, staggered, and followed the line of prisoners migrating into the water tower shadows. Beyond the black metal doors, the area inside the tunnel darkened. Bearded herbals, clothes tatted, pushed the next cartload of material up the tracks. The men in white robes supervised the workers. At the entrance adjacent to the doors, another group of prisoners stood between a steaming dark cauldron and a small table with stacked bowls. One of the soldiers barked out as he moved back. Receive your sustenance before you join the herbals. He pointed to more ragged-clothed men along the tunnel walls. Drink the solemn from the bowls. Loftus gazed at the water tower silhouetted against the first stars. He was not sure he would see the sky again. One of the prisoners handed him a dented cold metal bowl. He held it out as another man poured a thick orange chunky mush from a large ladle. Again he stared at the stars as he lifted the bowl and swished the spicy mixture around his mouth. You will not want for Solob, said the soldier. Without Solob, you criminals cannot work. We are not without compassion in the morgue. Loftus smacked his lips and took in more of the salty Solob. He studied the rough rock walls with torches leading downward. In his life, he had always had a plan, but now he succumbed to his fate within the tug of Tabun Shah. He shook his head and fought the urge to resonate. Prisoners, there is more food inside. You will move inside the morgue. Loftus gulped the last of the solemn and placed the bowl back on the table. The prisoner behind the table opened his glazed eyes. Sovereign Delicior Malbuum. I don't understand. Sovereign Delicior Malibuum. He recited the same quip for the next prisoner. Loftus glanced at him as he trailed the other prisoners through the opening in the rock ledge. Thin mica sheets interdispersed within gray rock layers sparkled in the torchlight. He stepped onto a sloping powdery trail next to polished steel tracks bordered with rust. As the white-robed guards watched prisoners push carts up the tracks over the crest where the tunnel dipped, Loftus approached one of the scruffy herbals loitering near one of the upper carts. Why are they dressed in white? You will have your chance if your spirit finally breaks. Loftus stared at his smudge-skinned face in the wrapped cloth cap. We are herbals, the workers in this mine. They are the transporters, the weak ones who have worked their way up from the morgue. Traitors to all herbals. They do as they are told. We have no respect for them. Loftus closed his eyes and dreaded confinement below ground. Once taken down into the morgue, he might stay in the mines for years. I am innocent. What was your crime? asked the miner. They told me I was a Oryx Soames, a worshipper of Tabun Shah. A commendable crime. Herbals do not persecute followers of Tabun Shah. We welcome them. You worship Tabun Shah here? he asked as the miner paralleled the moving line. What other road is there to follow? Tabun Shah guides us throughout infirmities and burdens. Without Tabun Shah, we would all be dead. That doesn't make any sense. The miner tightened his brow. 
As one convicted for worship, you are vacant. I don't know anything about the legends of Tabun Shah. You speak as a follower of the Tolton. He will fall, and the Tabun Shah presence will be felt by all in the need. Loftus turned as a group of transporters slowly dragged the massive black metal doors inward over the gritty ground. He felt trapped when he heard the echo of the doors clamp into place. One of the transporters approached and spoke in a low monotone. I saw you speaking. So what? You will not address your superiors in that defiant tone. You are not my superior, said Loftus. The herbal turned once the transporter headed for the doors. Watch that he does not alert the Korobs. The what? The Overcore's soldiers. We need to get you below before he complains. New prisoners can be punished for defiance. Several Korobs rushed inside the tunnel. The transporter straggled behind as they surrounded Loftus. You have defied your superiors and will be taught obedience. They grabbed his arms and shoved him to the dirt. When he tried to stand, they smashed a spear against his temple. Someone kicked him in the face and he staggered back. They pummeled his already weakened body and he drifted out of consciousness and in pain. Another blow to his head sent him out. Chapter 59. A faint red glow covered his swollen eyes and the coolness of a moist cloth soothed but stung his forehead and face. His left eye was buried beneath inflated flesh. But with his good eye, he saw an array of flickering white candles on the rock ledges. Herbals gathered around him, and an old man with a wispy gray beard leaned over. Loftus studied his wrinkled countenance as he spoke in a whisper. Where am I? The old man looked at the others. Cabius! Get Cabius! He is awake now! Praise be to Tabun Shah! The taller man with veins protruding from his hands and wrist moved around the rocks. He had a loud, firm voice. Give him more water, Halsus. The old man's shaky hands lifted the tin water cup to Loftus's cracked lips. Loftus coughed as the coolness meandered down his throat. More, more. Cabeus sat on an adjacent rock as the old man again poured the chilled water into his mouth. Only with great luck did we find you. Not luck, said Halsus. Tabun Shah. We were in the outer tunnels checking for tools left behind. We'd happened to be in that part of the mine or you would have died. Then I owe my life to forgotten tools, he said in a raspy voice and tried to smile. Get some solub over here. This man needs to regain his strength. You are the leader of this Alcetir, he said, still watching the miners gather the food. He looked back at Loftus. I lead them in their work as herbals. Who are you? Tom Loftus. Loftus, a worshipper of the most holy words, we hold great respect for you. Why? The Eskers have read the tenants on your Bunshaf. You are an instrument of Tabunshar and Oryx Zones. If I recall, that's how I ended up in this place. When I arrived, I talked to a transporter. He turned me into the Korob, who in turn beat the living daylights out of me. The old man rolled his eyes and Cabeus pointed at Loftus. Never trust a transporter. They are weak. I despise them. Obviously, the Korab's made an example of you for the others. No, Overcora leaves the running of the morgue to the herbals. Loftus moved his arms until his elbows were propped on the rock. How do I get out of here? The miners near the tunnel laughed, and Cabeus waved them back. 
I don't think you understand. There are two choices in the morgue. Become a transporter and conform, or stay in herbal and live and die below. I can't say I like either choice. He will learn, said Halsus. With his good eye, he looked around the hollowed cave. Who made this place? How, how deep are we in the ground? The young man and woman approached with a wooden bowl. The woman brought the steamy, onion-smelling broth to his lips. We are under the ground, whether it be ten gratfus or ten thousand demets. We perform our duties, produce our quotas, and receive sustenance from the transporters. We work together as herbals, and we share the noma. What is the noma? he asked as he slurped the broth. An odd question for one who professes the auric psalms. I didn't claim that. You did. The Eskers told us your Bunshaf's tenants span the millennium. Loftus sat up and his eye throbbed. Who exactly are the Eskers? Readers of the ancient words, said Halsus in a quivering voice. The Eskers represent the living tradition of the Tabunshah, the lost ones. I must say at times I feel as if I'm being taken by forces around me. Those most favorable are called, said Halsus, Suri of Khan. What is that? asked Loftus, slinking back to the blanket as he closed his eyes. Cabius's voice echoed throughout the cave. Suryav Khan, predicted in the Saba. Loftus kept his eyes closed, but his stomach wrenched, just as when DeLuca told him the same thing. I have many questions to ask the Eskers. In time, Loftus, in time, all your questions will be answered. Chapter 60 Over the weeks far below the surface... Loftus gained back strength and his eye healed. Away from the Ovacorus Corbs, he spent most of his time inside the Noma, the sacred cavern and herbal worship place. The Eskas lived in connecting caves, meditating and helping the herbals to interpret the Saba. Loftus's memory returned to images of the learned ones on Altashar, but linking them with these men proved frustrating. No one had ever heard of the Learned Ones or Altashar. Tabunshar represented the totality of the ancient high civilization, once gifted with technological prowess. According to the strict interpretation, engineering life forms on many planets proceeded slowly via the passageway. They somehow perfected control of evolving life on their worlds. The civilization's original planet evolved to a high level, but the vicious Creod suddenly attacked them. Over the millenniums, they fought back and eventually took the Creod planet, but they were defeated in a great battle. They fled near the end of that battle. After their disappearance, they communicated in nonverbal ways to all who resonated. The Ancient Ones inspired the Saber writings and the prophecies in the unfolding millennium. Loftus stood alone atop a raised area inside the cavern. What looked like a scale balanced on either side with colorful liquids rested across the open area. It was said that achieving the balance of the scale brought peace from Tabunshar. He turned the rigid gray pages and studied the handwriting scrawl from a seer, one who sensed the ancient ones. Then he read out loud, He is the Suryaf Khan. Listen to him. He wands of the hordes as he approaches along the still waters before the final battle. Free us, Suryav Khan, from the threat of annihilation. Let the battle begin in great reflection. Those words, 
said one of the white-haired eskers as he walked through the Noma cave, were written by one who has long since turned to dust, but his essence and the essence of his words live on, both poignant and frightening, Esker, especially to the Suryaf Khan. Loftus grinned and raised his brows. While he fought their characterizations of him as the Suryaf Khan, he was still possessed with both a sense of urgency and a link to the past. He lifted his bunshaf and thought about Taban Shah and why he had been given the small bunshaf on another planet long since destroyed by the Kriyads. At the proper time in history, he traveled back across the intergalactic passageway and was now below this planet, learning more about the word of Taban Shah. I don't understand what I'm feeling. You mean about Taban Shah? Maybe. If somebody had told me six months ago that I'd be studying a quasi-religious text in a mine under some faraway planet, the Esker's aging blue eyes opened and his wispy white beard hairs moved around his mouth as he spoke. With listening is meaning. Reason is a guise for the truth we never hear. We are all vulnerable to the interventions. The interventions can tilt and one becomes out of balance. I read about fear yesterday, the 16th tenant from the first millennium. It is fear, Esker, that fuels that inner vengeance. You have done well for the short time you have been here. By now you should understand that you are being summoned by Tabun Shah. You have a responsibility, Loftus. I'm curious, but I have no responsibility. In time, events will prove your longings, said the Esker, and responsibilities. And if I shun those responsibilities? You won't, don't you see? It is written what you will do. Loftus leaned against the worn Noma bench. Not that I have an overriding desire to find Tabun Shah, and all this talk of the interventions in a Kriart attack in battle, follow the road that was laid out for you years before you were born. Before I left the mead, my friend told me to follow my heart. And I have to admit that something is tugging at my heart. You have shared the mysteries of the Nomer twice with us. Continue to resonate in private again and again until you find your way. Follow your heart and trust, and continue to trust in Tabun Shah, and all your paths will be made straight. That is from the third millennium, said Loftus. Excellent, said the old man as he hugged Loftus. I only know that things will change. The ancient prophecies will come to be and remove the interventions from the universe. And you, Loftus, the Surya of Khan, will not be here forever. Let's add the word tricky and crafty to Saad's resume of alien-human type attributes. He is well on his way to heading back to his home, Urkham, to take over the realm. Loftus, on the other hand, is at the other end of the spectrum, deep beneath the planet, with miners who worship Tabun Shah. For the agnostic, atheistic Loftus, moving into the realm of spiritual awakening is a new experience. 
And speaking of experiences, let's see how Sard handles the upper echelon on the home planet next time as episode four of Sojourn premieres on Fitting on the Air. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.